I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help, and from his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Those are the first six verses of Psalm 18, the first 20 verses of which are the psalm appointed for today, Wednesday, December the 29th, 2021. It's good to be back with you. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Um, We are in the season of Christmas, and it lasts until January the 6th, which is the day of Epiphany. We'll talk more about that when we get to Epiphany. But but in the, the liturgical calendar for the year, Christmas begins on Christmas Day and ends on the 12th day of Christmas, which would be Epiphany. So we, we begin today by looking at Isaiah 12, 1 to 6, and then in the first eight verses of the book of the Revelation, and then finally in John's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 37 to 52. So the, the Isaiah passage, um, there was a song. One of the, when we first went to Pauly's Island, there was a song um, called the first song of Isaiah, and it was actually this passage right here, and it was one of the most meaningful songs. Uh, one of the the greatest worship songs that I've ever um, sung. I, I I loved it. Whenever this song would show up uh, on a Sunday or a Wednesday or whatever, whenever we were worshiping and we sang this song, it, it's just it's a glorious uh, ode to the Lord and and the 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 desire to proclaim Him and to worship Him in this way. And so here we go. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And and so it's this, what what Isaiah is saying here is is that that I I used to sort of know you as as God, right? So he, he was my strength and my song. And then I ran into trouble because you were angry with me. And then you anger turned to comfort me. And so God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And it's, it's important for all of us, whether we can name the date, place, time, and all that kind of stuff, it's important for all of us to have had an encounter with him where we became new people where we became fully alive and aware of him and his love for us and his desire for us, that that he is our salvation. And what does that salvation mean? Well, it means that we are delivered from sin and death. Okay, so I'm going to continue in this body, and so there will, con- there will be sin still in my life, but I have the Holy Spirit to quicken me in other directions and towards repentance, if that is. That I allow that. So it's important for us to move beyond head knowledge to this knowledge of he is my savior. 
with joy. You will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. And so Isaiah is speaking to a wayward people, and he's been told that they won't listen. They will not listen to him, and they'll end up going into captivity. So he is still looking ahead to this thing that will happen, but he's seeing it not only with his eyes, but in his being, as it's revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, what God will do. And so the salvation awaits a future fulfillment in many ways, but Isaiah is participating in that now. As he writes this, he is participating in his spirit in what he knows for certain God will do. And, it, it, and he had less evidence of that than we do, except for he had the evidence of history. And that evidence of history showed that God's people would get into predicaments because of their own sinfulness, and then God would rescue them from those predicaments. And so he believes that ultimately, because God is a covenant-keeping God, and a covenant is a permanent thing, and it's based on his faithfulness, not on the faithfulness of the people. That's the reason that that at the time that the covenant was struck with Abraham, that, that only God passed between the pieces of the birds that had been laid out, was because it couldn't rely on the faithfulness of human beings. It had to rely on the faithfulness of God. So, because it would be annulled as soon as we were unfaithful. And so this is a unilateral covenant with a bilateral benefit. So God has a people, and people have a God. And so here what we see is is that that Isaiah rejoices because he believes in the faithful covenant-keeping God who does not annul his covenants. They are permanent, they are everlasting covenants. And so Isaiah is saying here, I know, I know what God's going to do. I see it all happening, and I know how this is going to turn out. And so he's telling them, go ahead and sing for joy now because of who he is. Even, even in the midst of your pain and your suffering, see with me the deliverance that will come in the same way that Abraham was assured that his people would be in slavery and captivity in Egypt for 400 years and then be brought out and brought into the land God had showed him. And he believed, and that faith was counted to him as righteousness, in spite of the fact that the only fulfillment of a promise that he had was his son, the one son that he waited 25 years for, and then 30 years later was told to take him up on the mountain and sacrifice him. But his faith was complete, complete enough that when his wife Sarah died, he buried her in what would be the land that God had promised and that was his only thing in the land that he owned was the place where he buried his wife. That's faith. I know how this is going to turn out. I'm going to be buried here. Jeremiah did the same thing. Jeremiah, even though he knew they were going into captivity and they were going to be there 70 years, he was highly unlikely to come back with them. He still bought a piece of property as a pledge that God would do this as in faith. So in the revel, in the I'm sorry in the gospel passage it, this this to me this gospel reading is shows how your head can get way ahead of your heart and your head the things that you know can be the greatest barrier to true knowledge 
So on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This festival is right at the end of um, the dry season, the festival that's, that he's at here. It's right at the end of the dry season, and so it's, it rainy season is about to begin. And, and so what we would see is the people in faith coming and pouring out whatever water they have, believing that God's going to send the rains. And so their statement of faith is the pouring out of the water that they have, which would be a precious commodity at this point. And so Jesus stands and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So it's in keeping with the festival. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture is said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were ready were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now it's interesting that John gives us the explanation for what this means, that, that out of his heart will flow live, rivers of living water, because this is exactly the same promise that Jesus made to the Samaritan woman at the well which was three chapters prior to this. And so in time, it would have happened before this festival. And, and Jesus didn't explain that to her at all. But he offered her rivers of living water. And so here he offers it now to the people of God as they've gathered together for this festival and this worship in Jerusalem. Now, prior to that, what we saw when he left Jerusalem in John 3 was is that he wouldn't entrust himself to the people there because he knew what was in the heart of men. But then he entrusted himself to this woman in Samaria who most people would have looked at and said, well, I know what's in her heart. It's adultery. You know, she'd been married all these times and she's living with somebody now. So here now he comes back at the festival. And so to these people, he, he is prepared to reveal himself. And when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet, and the prophet is the one that, that would be like Moses, that, that Moses said, when this one arises among you, listen to him. So he, he would have been the successor to Moses. And others said, this is the Christ. The prophet is the one for whom the Samaritans were looking, by the way, because they only have the first five books. Others said, this is the Christ, which is something that comes later. So these are two different perspectives, but it's the same person. Some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? So this is how we're going to evaluate him, really, where he's from. I mean, it would be sort of where we live, I guess. You know, we live in Buncombe County. It was, it was a guy named Buncombe uh, who was a state senator before. So anyway, north of here, the next county north of here, between here and the Tennessee border, is Madison County. And so Madison County is mostly a rural kind of a place. So it would be sort of like people in Buncombe County saying, well, can, you know, is there any evidence that, the, that, that Christ is going to come from Madison County? I mean, that, that, so that's, they, they know the word. And I can remember uh, a guy named Mike Breen, uh, preaching one time and having him talk about people, he called them frog Christians. And, and what he meant by that was if you asked them about the Bible, their, their response was always, read it, read it, read it. But they didn't understand it. They didn't see the truth behind it. They, they, in fact, they were blinded to the truth by what they knew. And that's true in certain kinds of theology, to be honest with you. You can, you can set up a systematic theology or an unsystematic theology, either one, and, and be completely wrong. But that one wrong understanding will put you in a very wrong place down the road. And that's what's happened in liberal Christianity is, is that you throw out part of the Bible and you say, well, this doesn't apply or this is, you know, wrong. Then then now you become the arbiter of the text. And so you can throw out anything you like or actually you'd only be throwing out the stuff you don't like. So that becomes an issue. 
is what we know becomes an issue. And so uh, you've seen scholars, quote unquote, like Bart Ehrman, um, who, who are complete skeptics. They don't believe anything. And it's because they think their scholarship has led them you know, down a road that says, oh, well, now that I know so much, I don't believe anything anymore. Well, the reality is, is that other people have equal <laughs> credentialing and, and they didn't come to that same conclusion, but Irma did. And so he no longer believed. And, and that's not, you know, anybody else's problem. And it doesn't mean he's an authority, because like I said, other people have at least as good credentials, if not far better credentials than Bart Ehrman. And they didn't come to that conclusion at all. So it, what he knew became a barrier to, to what he believed. And so some said, is, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Hadn't the scripture said the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? That's where he was born. <laughs> the, the birth and infancy narrative tells us exactly that because of the census. And Luke is at pains to give us precise triangulation points. Who was the governor? Who was the king? Who was the this? Who was the that? And I'm talking about this census, not that census. And so he's, he's allowing us to triangulate the date. Even though we're 2,000 years later, it's easy to triangulate this date and say, okay, they would have had to go to Bethlehem. They didn't have any choice to enroll in the census. So we know that he's from Bethlehem. So there was a division among the people over him, and some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. And so the officers who had been sent by the chief priests and the Pharisees to uh, arrest Jesus, they came and said, and the Pharisees and the chief priests said, why didn't you bring him in? And the officer said, no one ever spoke like this guy. In other words, it, he's saying things, and, and we actually, you know, no, we're not going to bring him in. We're not going to arrest him because he, he's got something to say. And nobody, we've never seen anything like this before. And the, and the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the, here's the, here's the standard, right, by which belief is going to be set up. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Well, you didn't believe in John the Baptist either, but people went out to him. Just because you don't believe in him doesn't become the standard by which everybody else makes a decision about belief or not. Right? So, so they, the leaders, haven't believed in him. So why would you? Look to us. We'll show you what to believe in. We can be trusted because we know. This crowd that does not know the law, they're accursed. Wow, that's pretty cynical. <laughs> for leaders to say this crowd that doesn't know the law is accursed. Well, why don't they know the law? You're the teachers. Why would the crowd not know the law? And you're talking about a crowd that's gathered in, in uh, response to a command of the law to be present for the festival. They don't know it, and they're accursed. That's how you feel about the people God gave you to shepherd? It tells you everything in the world. Right. I mean, that what what you see in this passage is, is these people who have already made up their minds that Jesus is not the Christ have a cynical attitude towards the people that Jesus didn't share at all. He offered them eternal life here and, and they're telling them they're accursed. They're accursed. The people under my leadership don't know the law and they're accursed. Well, the, if, if they don't know the law, that's on you, not them. And. How could you possibly be so cynical as to say that the people under my leadership are accursed? And so Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and that's in John 3, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? In other words, this kangaroo court is what you're trying to do. You're trying to pass judgment on this guy without even giving him an opportunity to defend himself. And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? I mean, really, seriously, that's what you got? Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. 
Well, a lot of the disciples were from Galilee, and we know that because that's exactly what Peter's accused of. He has this Galilean accent, and so he's a Galilean, therefore he must be with Jesus. And so here, that's what they're saying. This is a Galilee thing. It's not a Jerusalem thing. He's a deceiver. And the proof is, well, he comes from Galilee. Well, there's some circular logic going on there, and it doesn't admit other knowledge, which is he was born in Bethlehem. So that, that's the biggest problem we end up with is, is that we always need to examine our logic when we think about things. We need to make sure that we're not engaging in circular logic. That is, that, that we reason to a conclusion, whether that conclusion is warranted or not, and then we reason from that conclusion back to other things. And so we, that's what they've done. They've concluded that he's from Galilee in spite of the fact that that's not true. They've concluded that, and then now what they've done is they've, they've reasoned from that bad piece of information that Jesus is not the Messiah because the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee. He comes from Bethlehem. In the Revelation passage, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So this is the revelation of what will be, and it's made known to John by the sending of an angel to to, to begin the revelation, to show John the things that must take place. But it's to a specific John, the one who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And then he begins properly speaking, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. So he's writing to the churches that are under his purview, kind of as a bishop or, or apostle in residence kind of a thing. He says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and was and is to come from the seven spirits who were before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on the earth. What he has told Pilate was is that he was there to bear witness to the truth. That's exactly what Jesus said his mission was, is to bear witness to the truth. And so here, John says Jesus is the faithful witness. Well, he's the faithful witness of what? Truth. He is the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on the earth. Whether it looks like that or not, he is. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. So he has given us salvation, the freedom from our sins by his blood. And he also, in addition to that, made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. So not only did we receive salvation, not only did we receive eternal life, we receive a commission. We call it the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Sometimes we forget that last part, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And, and here what John has said is, is, is that blessed are those who hear and keep the revelation. And Jesus it has been a faithful witness, and so we're called to be faithful witnesses to the truth. And that faithful witness to the truth is twofold. It's to know the truth, but it's to do the truth. So it's not just something we speak, it's something we do and something we are. So to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.
Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So John's given us the assurance that he didn't just do this work in the past and then leave us alone. No, he's coming again in the clouds, and every eye will see him. And and Jesus has said that very thing. He says in, in Matthew 24 and then in Luke, what, 12? Um, he has promised when he gives the signs of the things that will come that he'll come in the clouds. And they've also been told that in Acts when Jesus ascends and the, they stand looking into heaven and the angel says, what are you doing here? He's going to come in the same way that he left. So don't worry about it. So this is John's saying, yeah, you can trust all that. It's all believable. And he said, now, now he speaks. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I encompass all of that who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. In other words, I I have always been and I will always be, and I am. All three of those things play together, and, and John's saying that you can trust this. Jesus was the faithful witness. You can trust him in all the things that he said, and then all these revelations that I'm about to give to you because they came from Jesus. And so we know he's a faithful witness, so we know we can trust these things as well. Take it to the bank.